You're listening to the Better for America podcast, presented by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Hello, everybody, and welcome to AMAC's Better for America podcast. My name is Rebecca Weber, and today I am pleased to speak with Robert Charles. To learn more also about AMAC's podcasts and future podcasts, you can find us on YouTube under AMAC, that's A-M-A-C, the Association of Mature American Citizens. We'll also be hosting this podcast on our website at amac.us. Bobby Charles served in the Reagan and Bush 41 White Houses as Assistant Secretary of State under Colin Powell and counsel to the U.S. National Security Subcommittee for five years. A former litigator, he taught law at Harvard University's Extension School, and he recently authored a fantastic book, Eagles and Evergreens. Bobby consults in Washington, D.C., and he's AMAC's national spokesperson, speaking both on national radio and in the media, appearing often on Fox News. Bobby, welcome to our uh, Better for America podcast today. How are you today? It is a pleasure to be with you and uh, at consequential times for our country. Excellent. Bobby, you know, our, our members, they want to hear from us. They they want to understand what's going on. This year's election fallout reveals a huge battle between freedom and communism. And today we want to talk about possible election outcomes. Now, we understand that Trump has a great uphill legal battle. And uh, we're going to talk about what could happen should there be no certification of an undisputable majority. Uh, But Bobby, first, we've heard of many statistical anomalies in the Biden votes. For example, there were significant deviations in votes for Biden in Wisconsin, Illinois, Pennsylvania. Uh, And these these, uh, discrepancies suggest possible evidence of what they're calling artificial manipulation of the data. And we know that Wisconsin is headed for a recount Bobby, can you explain to our our listeners, many whom are are AMAC members, how these recounts may affect the outcome? Certainly. You know, in the normal course of events, uh, we who are AMAC uh, generation members uh, over the age of 50, we tend to think that an election is going to be called on election day uh, or the day after. And of course, this one is very different. And, And why is it different? It isn't because Trump is running against Biden that it's different. It's different because this COVID uh, curse in many ways created the opportunity for uh, all these anomalies that are being reported in affidavits and being filed in about seven states now. <coughs> it allowed these these to grow up because there was an over-dependence on not just absentee ballots, but in mail-in ballots. In some states, uh, really a forced mail-in ballot process. So we have now, the first time in American history, an election being decided uh, essentially in these swing states by the balance of mail-in uh, ballots. Now that, of course, creates its own cascade of problems because mail-in ballots are objectively subject to fraud. That's why most of Europe and 37 states prior to this year did not allow uh, any significant mail-in ballots because fraud is very, uh, very likely in the in those environments. Now the president started talking about this early on. And, uh, and of course, lo and behold, the election day comes and goes, and we have in at least seven states, and I'm including Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, Nevada, and arguably even Minnesota, you have anomalies uh, based on a number of things happening. Uh, one is what we'll call voter fraud. So that's, that's individuals or groups of individuals who uh, have either uh, 
intentionally or accidentally, but if it's fraud, then it's intentional, uh, have misused the balloting process. Uh, maybe they didn't do signatures. Maybe they did ballot harvesting, which is the collection of ballots when they're not entitled to collect them. Maybe they influenced voters. Of course, people filling out a ballot anywhere, you know, anywhere in their home or anywhere else are, are not subject to the same kind of protocols that you have, including ID checks, et cetera, when you're, when you're at the polling place. The other big reason that you have anomalies is what we call electoral fraud. So that can be either a manual or a mechanical uh, shifting of votes. And what we know is that the number of states, even if you narrow it to just the, the central states under discussion at the moment, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, uh, those are states sufficient in number of electoral votes to turn the election. And that's why the president is entirely entitled to go back and should be, in fact, as a matter of duty to clear the air. Our members certainly agree with you there. Uh, matter of fact, I encourage any listener right now, if you haven't signed the petition, go to our website, amac.us, and sign the petition uh, to fight election fraud and voter fraud. And Bobby, we know that the United States Electoral College is the group of presidential electors uh, required by the Constitution. Uh, they form every four years for the sole purpose of electing the president and the vice president. And the certification deadline has already passed for at least six states, with more deadlines coming up this week. And we know that once all these states have been certified and certify the results, um, the presidential electors take over and they ultimately meet and vote for their state's choice for president. So I think what our listeners are concerned about is um, they're hearing mainstream media say that the Electoral College is not going to give Trump a second term. And that's what you what that that's what I'm finding, uh, certainly uh, on mainstream media outlets. Can you help explain how Trump's legal challenges can affect the, the Electoral College vote? Uh, must they certify by a certain date, despite these legal challenges in these battleground states that we're currently facing? Absolutely. So the, the, the Constitution, together with the statute that enables the Electoral College to go forward, says that on the second, effectively what happens on the, on the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December, which is the 14th this year, the Electoral College, uh, as selected by state legislatures, will, uh, will meet and will cast those votes. The number of votes involved in what I'll call presently disputed states is sufficient to tip the balance. So Michigan has 10, Pennsylvania 20, Wisconsin 10, Georgia 16, and you could even throw in Nevada at six and Arizona at 11. The way the Constitution and the 12th Amendment, which governs the Electoral College, works, uh, and by the way, why do we have a 12th Amendment that talks about the Electoral College? The reason is that in the year 1800, there was a disputed election. Thomas Jefferson eventually prevailed, but in 1803, they said, you know, we've got to, we're going to have to clarify this because it's it's messy the way that we have it at the moment. And the bottom line is that they 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 instituted procedures that we're now using even at this late date uh, that that allow us to credibly give the appropriate balance to each state through the electors, and so how can how can these lawsuits affect things? Really, two ways. The president has brought lawsuits, and actually a number of citizens have, to which there are attached affidavits by the hundreds, arguing that in, in particular in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Georgia, but also potentially also in Wisconsin, Nevada, and Arizona, there are anomalies that amount to uh, material uh, material errors and material areas errors at such a level that if they get corrected, a number of votes that are viewed as either illegal or commingled could be thrown out. 
Um, and if the, if the number of votes thrown out could affect the outcome of the election. There are really two ways to think about this. If the Supreme Court takes up these cases, which it very well may, there are two constitutional claims they can look at. One is equal protection, and that is exactly what decided the case uh, Bush v. Gore in 2000. And the other is whether or not state legislatures, which are constitutionally required to set up the voting process, were actually preempted by election officials, particularly in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan. Oh. Mm-hmm. So we know that if the Supreme Court takes up equal protection or if they take up this legislative issue, they could, in fact, decide this outcome the same way they did in Bush v. Gore. But I would argue that there is a much more likely turn of events, and that is that Come uh, Electoral College Day, uh, December 14th, uh, or even as early as six days before that, when they're picking the electors, it may very well be that they decide that there are disputed there are disputed states that cannot be readily resolved. That is to say that the fraud, mismal, or nonfeasance in these states was sufficiently difficult to resolve that they will remain in dispute. And that, in particular, would be Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, maybe Nevada, maybe Arizona, maybe Wisconsin. The outcome is that the Supreme Court may, I would argue at probably a 5-4 or greater decision, may say, we cannot decide the outcome of this election ourselves. We want to stay out of politics. But because these are disputed states and no candidate has 270 votes in the Electoral College without these disputed states, the entire election then goes over into the House of Representatives. Now, you might say, if you're listening and you're thoughtful about this process, gosh, uh, Nancy Pelosi must run the House. We'll probably lose there. Actually, the answer is not that way. In fact, it's the next Congress, for starters. And in the next Congress, as you know, there are more Republican seats than there were in this Congress. But more to the point, each of the delegations, according to the Constitution, gets just one vote. And presently, Republicans have a 26 delegation advantage uh, over to the Democrats 22. And actually, because of the most recent election, Iowa and Minnesota become abstentions, forced abstentions. So if it goes to the House of Representatives as a disputed election and the Constitution's 12th Amendment kicks in, the component of the amendment that says that the House has to decide it, because uh, because races are in dispute, then there is a chance that the House would decide that Trump becomes the victor. Very, very interesting. So let me just sort of recap some of what you said here. So we know that the Monday after the second Wednesday in December of the presidential election year is set as the date on which the electors meet and vote. So for 2020, that meeting is on December 14th. Uh, one scenario is that the state legislators could choose their own slate of electors, giving Trump 270 electoral votes. And another scenario would be, uh, might be, uh, we could see some faithless electors that could flip from Biden to Trump, giving him a second term. Uh, but most uh, suspect that virtually all of the electors will remain uh, steadfast and loyal to the Biden-Harris ticket. Now, what's interesting here, and if we do a little bit of... Um, research, we understand that the um, the House of Representative members are based on population, right? They're elected from each congressional district, and each state has two senators. So for example, New York has 27 uh, House of Representatives, two senators for 29 electoral votes. Now, Trump is attacking the legitimacy of the results of the election. And again, AMAC members stand with him. We stand with him and, and we, we recognize that he is uh, due and afforded uh, this legal process. 
his concession is voluntary, strictly voluntary. Another thing that a lot of folks don't understand, it's not mandatory. It is not required by law that the concession speech occur. It's really just a custom. No law requires it. Uh, of course, it aids in any kind of peaceful transfer of power, but it is not required. So if the president, for example, were to concede, then there would be no legal battle. And then the Electoral College can vote and votes can be certified, but he is not conceding. And Trump is saying that he will contest into January. Uh, at least that's what, what, I'm, what I'm, you know, hearing, uh, take a look at his, at his uh, Twitter feed. Uh, he certainly believes that he won this election. Uh, so we know that the courts will need to deal with, with these various aspects of constitutional law. But again, our listeners know there is a margin of less than 1% in these battleground states. So while legal options are available, we've got this Amendment 12 of the Constitution that really does give us an answer. And it says, if, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Bobby, but, it, but my understanding is it says if the courts cannot rule uh, and he does not concede, that then there is no certification or, or if there is no certification of an uh, undisputable majority, then we go to the House of Representatives. Is that correct? So you're you're absolutely right. And let me uh, let me even consolidate further. You you really have uh, done a great job at at summarizing and more to the point of also throwing up a couple of other options. And then we go back to this idea of a disputed election uh, and uh, it getting thrown into the House. You make a really good point that actually electors are selected by state legislators. Uh, and so technically, they don't even have to have an election in a state if they don't want, uh, by tradition, of course, and by uh, uh, the attempt to put legitimacy behind our, our elected officials, we do that. But uh, if they should decide that their state for some reason is, an, is uh, coming to the wrong conclusion, Republican-controlled legislatures in states that are even uh, with a Democrat governor could do that. I don't think that's going to happen uh, because I think most of them recognize that they, they need to honor whatever the outcome of a recount uh, in their state is. You also make the point, uh, a very good point, that uh, this could get kicked into the House for a couple of different reasons, or you could end up with faithless electors. Interestingly, about half the states make it more or less illegal for a faithless elector to do, uh, not to vote the way that the state legislature has directed that that. Uh, that set of electors to vote. But uh, at the same time, there are some states that do not punish that. And, and even in the last election, there were, I think, seven faithless electors. I think three voted for Colin Powell and four voted for their own special, you know, whoever they wanted. In this particular case, uh, yes, the 12th Amendment in particular reads, and I, I it, you know, the, the, the relevant component of the amendment says that if no person have such majority in the Electoral College, then from the persons having the highest number, not exceeding three on the list of those voted for as president, the House of Representatives shall choose immediately by ballot the president. And so what we're talking about here is the unlikely but possible scenario that courts conclude that these are in fact uh, disputed elections. The president in turn does not concede and you end up with a decision possibly by the Supreme Court, and I would argue probably 5-4 with Barrett now on the court, possibly 6-3 with, with Roberts, but he hasn't been particularly faithful himself to uh, what people think of as strict constructionism. But in any event, uh, you end up with this determination by the court saying, look, we don't want to make this decision ourselves, but we will attest that there are, say, three or four states uh, that are uh, remain in dispute. Remember, you really only need to get below 270. Even the media gives Biden right now something like 290. Pennsylvania, yeah. 20. 
uh, and any other state pulls you down below that number. So the option continues to exist, Rebecca, that the president could be selected by the House. Very good. So, Bobby, just to be clear, should the election go to the House, the the results of this 2020 election become null and void. The Congress, the House of Representatives, considers the election obsolete. And essentially, the House of Representatives, the Congress, can officially and constitutionally vote in our next president. Is that right? The way that I would think of it, and maybe I'm just too much of a constitutionalist, but the way I would think of it is that there are many winding turns that take you to a destination. The destination we're looking for is a legitimate, constitutionally justified uh, president of the United States to serve for the next four years. The election process is not so much obsolete as it, it it's the beginning stretch in a constitutional road that may have turns that lead us to the House of Representatives. And in the House of Representatives, at that moment, based on all that has gone before, we would constitutionally be asking uh, that the delegation count be taken and that the outcome of that be honored. Don't think for a minute, though, that the Democrats in this instance wouldn't try every trick. I, I guess I'm saying this because I foresee it, every trick in the book. There does need to be a quorum uh, in the House. So they might try to prevent a quorum. They might try to, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, a quorum could probably also be formed in other ways. But th there's an awful lot of open-endedness here. And one of the things that I'll say is the Constitution and our framers were brilliant in many ways because they gave us a directional indicator, which way to go, how to resolve disputes as they foresaw them. But there are, you know, in many ways, the silences in the Constitution are as loud as the words. And one of the things that we have never had to do before, uh, the 1876 election actually did kick us into the House of Representatives, and there was a determination. And the man that everyone thought had the higher number of votes, whose last name was Tilden, ended up losing to the man that had the lower number of uh, of undisputed votes, and that was Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, in fact, four states were disputed in that election, and, and the, the Congress, through a commission, decided that they would all go to Hayes. Uh, but the end game here is a legitimate president that is selected pursuant to constitutional process, and I think that's what we have to be patient and wait for. It's very hard to be patient, but that's what we have to wait for. Wow, that's so interesting, Bobby. <clears throat> interesting even more so how the Constitution says that each state in the Congress would get one vote. So uh, quite interesting. And uh, I think our listeners are, are probably learning quite a bit. Uh, thank you so much for this great information. I do want to encourage our members to please add your name to support President Trump's effort to stop voter fraud. Very easy to do so. Just go to www.amac.us and be sure to tell uh, friends and family all about AMAC. We are here. We're standing for you shoulder to shoulder with our AMAC members. We want to be sure that every election, not just this year, and again, whether you voted for Biden or for Trump, we all deserve a fair and honest election. The outcome has to be a direct result of the people's vote, and every legal vote must be counted, uh, every illegal vote tossed out. Bobby Charles, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for joining, and uh, we look forward to having you back, hopefully in a week or two. My honor. It's going to be a very exciting couple of weeks. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you for listening to the Better for America podcast. To learn more about AMAC and all it has to offer, 
visit us at www.amac.us.